you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at laist.com sweeps. From the Moon Broadcast Center at KPCC, this is The Frame. I'm John Horn. With closing arguments in Harvey Weinstein's trial about to start, we catch up with a reporter who's been in the courtroom. Then, in her surprisingly modern film, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, Celine Siama wanted to tell a story of women in the 1700s. When I asked the experts, like, how were women doing with their period at the time? How were they handling abortion at the time? They know everything about their hair. They know everything about how they should dress and behave. But they don't know much about their privacy. And we'll explore the sonic wonders of ambient church. That's today on The Frame. We'll be right back. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. Harvey Weinstein's defense team rested its case in state Supreme Court in Manhattan yesterday. The outcome of the trial hinges on six women who testified in court that Weinstein sexually assaulted or raped them. The five felony charges against the producers stem from the allegations of only two of those women. Those charges include rape, criminal sexual assault, and predatory sexual assault, the last of which carries the possibility of a life sentence. Variety senior correspondent Elizabeth Wagmeister has been following the case. She laid out the allegations of the two main accusers. One of the women, her name is Mimi Halehi. She is alleging that Harvey Weinstein assaulted her. And uh, that was from an incident in 2006. Now, the other woman, her name is Jessica Mann, but we did not know about her prior to this trial starting. She was a Jane Doe, and we didn't know her name or her story until she testified. And she is alleging that Harvey Weinstein raped her and sexually assaulted her over the course of many years during many different occasions. So what has been the core argument presented by the government in its choice of and questioning of witnesses, including several other women who described a pattern of alleged assaults committed by Harvey Weinstein? They are presenting a case that shows that Harvey Weinstein was not just accused of sexual harassment, sexual assault or rape once, twice or three times. They are showing that he has a pattern of sexual predatory assault. Now, even though all of these charges stem from two women largely, there have been multiple women who have come into court and who have testified. Now, the reason that that has been done is so that the prosecutors can establish a pattern and the judge allowed women to take the stand and to testify to help establish the pattern. They are called Molinau witnesses. And even though charges do not stem from their account, they have taken the stand and told the jury what they allege Harvey Weinstein did to them. And it's worth noting that what they said happened to them happened too long ago to be used directly in a case in New York against Weinstein. So the defense rested yesterday. They did not call Harvey Weinstein as a witness. What was the thrust of their defense strategy? So the thrust of the defense's strategy was essentially 
to make these women appear as if they were opportunistic and as if they wanted their own benefit. They wanted career advancement. They wanted personal access from Harvey Weinstein. Of course, Harvey Weinstein has said from the very beginning of any allegations that all sexual encounters have been consensual. He has maintained that. His defense, of course, has maintained that. And his defense is trying to poke holes in these women's stories. And they've done so by showing evidence of text messages, of phone logs, of emails that depict the women staying in constant communication with Weinstein after they allege they were assaulted. We're talking with Variety's Elizabeth Wagmeister about the trial of Harvey Weinstein. One of Harvey Weinstein's defense lawyer gave an interview to the New York Times' Megan Toohey in which she suggested that sexual assaults are basically, and I'm using her words now, that blame rests equally between the person who is being assaulted and the person committing the assault. I think women need to be very um, prepared for the circumstances they put themselves in. And I think absolutely women should take on equal risk that men are taking on. And the responsibility should be equal as well. Has that been mirrored in how they have questioned witnesses in cross-examination? It absolutely has. That interview that Weinstein's lead attorney, Donna Rotuno, gave certainly made waves. Uh, you know, a lot of people have said that she is victim shaming and victim blaming. Well, in court, when she stands up and cross-examines these women, what she has said is, you kept emailing him. You stayed in constant communication with him. Are you really telling the ladies and the gentlemen of the jury that the man that you call your rapist is also the man that you emailed to make sure that he had your new phone number? In court, though, when many of these women have taken the stand, they have explained to the jury the only reason they went to a hotel is because Harvey Weinstein said, please meet me in the hotel lobby for a business meeting. So they went under, you know, the understanding they were meeting him for a business meeting and then they were lured up into a hotel room and brought into a situation that they did not believe they would be brought into. I think it's also fair to say that rape experts have said that victims sometimes remain on outwardly good terms with their assailants after the assault. It also seems that many of the women not only believe that Harvey Weinstein was interested in helping their careers, but also feared what would happen to them if they spoke out about what happened. Yes. So all of these women on the stand, they have said that not only did they think that Harvey could help them with their career, because that's exactly what he said when they first met him, you know, that he said to all of them, uh, you know, you're an actress. I think you're great for this lead role. Why don't you come and meet me at this hotel to read a script? But they also said not only were they hopeful of the career advancement that Harvey might be able to give them, but that they also feared that if they spoke out, that they would be blacklisted from Hollywood and that he would ruin any chance of a career in entertainment that they would have. So as the government and the defense lawyers put on their closing arguments and the jury begins its deliberations, is the fundamental question whether or not these encounters were consensual? Is that what it comes down to? Absolutely. I mean, this is a case ultimately of he said, she said. The, the big question is, was this consensual? Was it not? And there is a lot of gray area. None of this is cut and dry. In fact, only one of the accusers ceased all communication with him after she alleges she was assaulted. So there is gray area here because the question remains, why did these women keep in contact with him? And were they trying to advance their careers by complying with his request? And that's what it will all come down to. 
Elizabeth Wagmeister is a senior correspondent at Variety. She is in New York covering the trial of Harvey Weinstein. Elizabeth, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Closing arguments in the Harvey Weinstein case are set to begin tomorrow with the defense team going first. The jury is expected to get the case next week. Coming up on The Frame, the filmmaker of Portrait of a Lady on Fire makes a feminist love story from another era. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at LAS.com slash events. See you there. The French film Portrait of a Lady on Fire tells a love story that is rarely seen on screen. Two women, one an artist, the other a young woman whose portrait she's been hired to paint, fall in love. The setting is a windswept French island in the 1700s. The world on screen is populated almost entirely by women, but the men who dictate the rules of the world just outside the frame are an invisible but constant presence. Celine Siama is the writer and director of Portrait of a Lady on Fire, and she shares the same distribution company with Bong Joon-ho. She came into our studios the morning after the Oscars after celebrating with the Parasite winners into the wee hours. This weekend has been like an endless day, and I have my, my voice. Can, you, you, you can know about my night by hearing my voice, I think. But your company, Neon, which is distributing Portrait of Lady on Fire, last night did really well at the Oscars. So it's got to feel good, right? To be associated with a company that just won Best Picture, Best Director, Best International Feature, and Best Original Screenplay. Yeah, feels right. It feels like belonging to this... I mean, I've been on the journey with director Bong since Telluride, since Cannes, and being part of the same team with uh, this great distributor and friends. It's It's been a blessing. So before we talk about your movie in particular, I want to play some music that factors into your movie. It's summer from Evaldi's Four Seasons. How does this song figure into your movie? And at what point do you start thinking about a scene where someone is listening to this music? Well, that's the paradox. It's that the, the, this scene was, which is the last scene of the film, uh, was like the first scene that I had in mind. Um, it's kind of the scene, I made the movie because I had that scene in mind. I wanted to land the film there. And I basically wrote the film to actually make that scene. Uh, and sometimes when I got lost in, in the process of writing, a, a little bit discouraged, I, I, I had that scene in mind, and I knew that I had to do the film to do that scene with the Vivaldi tune. I want to ask you about the research you did when you're writing this story. So you have this scene in your mind, how the movie's going to end, and you work backward from that. How much time were you thinking about traditions and customs and what was going on in the world for women of a certain age at this period in history? Well, I did some research um, mostly regarding... Um, the woman artist at the time. So um, I work with the sociologist of the art, creating this female painter character, um, even sociologically, her being really accurate to the time. But uh, 
for the rest, mostly, like when, when I asked the experts, like how were women doing with their period at the time? How were they handling abortion at the time? Like they know everything about their hair. They know everything about how they should dress and behave. But They, they don't know much about their intimacy, their privacy. So it was mostly relying on the fact that um, what they go through, I go through also. And to, to build this continuity um, throughout time, relying on that um, rather than being accurate about the mundane way of, you know, the way they, 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 would, they would perform in the world. Because we always see that, especially in period pieces. It's about performing in the world. And that's also why I put them on an island, uh, basically being just, you know, never being with other characters, just, just being totally lonely so that we could share their intimacy. So, I, I, yeah. So even though they're isolated, these women live in a world where a woman of marrying age is bartered or is advertised or is marketed the way that you would on, you know, Tinder or Match where you're swiping, but the swiping now is a oil painting that's sent to a prospective suitor. So in many ways, things have not changed at all. Technology has evolved, but the way that matches are found is like, do you like the photo? Do you like the picture? And are you going to swipe up by sending a letter back to France? Yeah. But that's the, it's, we're more, much more in a self-portrait dynamic. Um, but do you have more power over an image you're, of yourself you're crafting for yourself? I don't know. But, um, I mean, it's, it's, it's too early to think about that, no? <laughs> <laughs> I want to ask you about the characters that are at the center of this story, Marianne and Eloise. They have strong feelings about a lot of things, But they live in a time where you don't really say what's on your mind and you don't share what your deepest, most personal feelings are. So when you're working with your actors, how do you describe how they are communicating what they feel when they can't always give voice to those feelings? Well, you know, I think they're giving voice to their feelings. I feel it's just that we decided to to craft this love dialogue, um, not building it on the narrative of conflict or being secretive. Um, so it's not about jealousy, it's not about possession, it's about saying what's on your mind. So I think they're being pretty honest with each other. We're not that used to that. There's no mind game here. And I'm not sure it's about uh, the fact that it's set in the past. I think it's about the fact that it, that it's written today by us. <laughs> And when I mean us, I mean myself, the screenwriter, but also... The actors, they, they, they build this very strong choreography, this tension about with the dialogue, but also the, the, their body. And we are looking very carefully at what it's like to fall in love. So it's also about how they look at each other, but also how they breathe, how they, and their body language and their chemistry, I think, um, is very strong. Ça fait des années que je rêve de faire ça. Mourir. Courir. We're talking with Celine Siama, who is the writer and director of Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Men are not present in this movie outside of a couple of scenes, but they are hovering on the outside. How did you talk about the presence of men, even though they weren't in the picture? Well, actually, we we didn't talk about it. That's the good thing. It's, that's just, I mean, men are left out of the frame and... That's how you feel their presence, because it's not about a male character. It's about the idea of patriarchy. 
So we're using um, the tools of cinema. That is, yeah, what you put in the frame, what you leave out of the frame. That defines the frame. So it gives you an experience um, of feeling this pressure without having the oppressive character. Um, so that's a way also not to objectify men because we don't want to objectify anyone. Um, you know, it's also a way to feel seen because when you're always in the frame, you're not seeing yourself. And like, for instance, I did the, the, the bonus for the DVD, the French DVD, like three weeks ago. And there was a, a sound engineer, male. He hadn't seen the film and, and we watched the film together. And at some point, there's a man that comes back in the frame and you see a close-up of the hand of a man and I saw him looking at his hand and he's like, oh, I've never... He, he, was, seeing, he was seeing his own body because he got, he got out of the frame and back. When you're thinking about how you and your cinematographer shoot this film, is it easy to unlearn the things that you think a shot is supposed to have? How women are supposed to look how their bodies are supposed to be positioned, that you have to constantly say, this is, I have to forget everything I've seen and been ta taught. Yeah, but it's it's pretty joyful because... To forget those things. Yes. If you can, that's sometimes hard to unlearn patterns. Yeah, but that's why you have to be radical because otherwise it's going to keep coming back. So it has to be, it has to be, you have to be radical and stick to it because yes, there's a strong, like for instance, they don't smile at each other for an hour and 10 minutes. I know that's not good advertising, <laughs> but, um, and on the set, they had such great chemistry and such, it was such a beautiful thing to see those two actors together. Everybody kept saying, oh, maybe you could do a take where they smile at each other. Like this could be more joyful. This, this is your be... producers or who is suggesting set, this? assistant director, okay. you know, and I just, it's about resisting. It's also about really not not letting go, not, it won't be useful in the editing room. Like, it shouldn't be useful in the editing room. We have to, we have to be radical. We have to be, resist the charming side of, 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 of actually shooting the film. One of the shots I love the most in this film is of your two characters, tiny spoiler, kissing, and it is a messy kiss. Mm -hmm. There's a little bit of spit or saliva, and it looks like real life. It's not polished. It's not the way we typically see bodies in films. I'm curious about that kiss because it seems to signal how you wanted to depict these two bodies together. Well, the weird thing is that, you know, I, I didn't in, intend this, the whole saliva thing. And I was looking at this and I was like, oh, but does it happen all the time in real life? And we are not aware. But it's just that in films, we don't show that. So we don't know how messy our actual kisses are because like special effects will tell me oh you we can get get rid of saliva and everybody would you know people were asking themselves a question and i was like oh like this must happen all the time and we we try we, we don't want to see it uh why because it, it's really it's really it's really sexy celine siama is the writer and director of portrait of a lady on fire celine thanks so much for coming in thank you Portrait of a Lady on Fire hits theaters on February 14th. Coming up on The Frame, church music to chill to.
As a farmer's son from a desert region in California, J.B. Hamby thinks a lot about water. I spent a lot of time digging up history, particularly about water, which is the origins of the Imperial Valley. How this 28-year-old became the youngest lead negotiator on the Colorado River ever. And how he could shape the most consequential negotiations to date. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts. Ambient church is pretty much what it sounds like. Atmospheric, chill-out music performed inside houses of worship. It's part concert, part light show, part communal art experience, and Ambient Church provides a rare home for those who love and create minimalist music. The Frame contributor Paul Ratliff attended a show, and he has our story. Ambient music is like a Zen koan made of music. It's music without music. It often has no melody, no rhythm, no structure. It doesn't necessarily take you anywhere. And according to producer Brian Eno, who coined the term ambient in 1978, it was never really meant to command your full attention at all. Here's Eno in 2011 on a show called One-on-One describing how he came up with the term while recovering from an accident. A friend of mine came over to see me and I was confined to bed. I couldn't move. But as she left, she said, shall I put a record on? And I said, please. The record was much too quiet, but I couldn't reach to turn it up. And it was raining outside. So so I lay there at first kind of frustrated by this situation. But then I started listening to the rain and listening to these odd notes of the harp that were just loud enough to be heard above the rain. And I suddenly thought of this idea of making music that didn't impose itself on your space in the same way, but created a sort of landscape that you could belong to, you could be part of. I pompously gave it a new name, which I called ambient music. When I think about ambient music, I don't think of it as a genre. I think of it more as an approach to making music, where every sound is on the table That is Brian Sweeney. He's the founder and curator of Ambient Church. It doesn't have a clear endpoint. It kind of just floats in and out, as opposed to where's this song going? I asked Brian to tell me about the inspiration for Ambient Church. Uh, I went to University of Vermont and studied community development. I think that I have a passion for bringing people together in massive groups where everyone can feel each other's energy. I take pleasure in bringing in a new way to get together. That's kind of what I have to offer the world right now. For his ambient church shows, Brian likes to book pioneers of the genre, people like Malcolm Cecil, whose early synth albums inspired Stevie Wonder to show up at his studio unannounced in 1971, which began a partnership that would produce four albums, including the classic Inner Visions. But he also built the largest synthesizer in the world, Tonto, you know, and he played to the largest audience he's ever played to. There were like 580 people in the room. He's 83, you know, like these shows have to happen, you know. Now, 
At the July show, which was held in a 132-year-old church in Pasadena, Anna Roxanne, who had described themselves to me as shy, took center stage with a kind of gravity that's usually reserved for large planets. I spoke to Anna before the show, and they told me about how their love for atmospheric, mellow music was solidified after being injured in a deadly car accident in college. Like, I was hospitalized for a long time. Just came face to face with, like, my own mortality. Dealing with that kind of loss or, like, losing a friend, it changed the way I saw the world, for sure. So I would listen to music. It just became, like, this really powerful thing in my life where I would always just need to have like some nice headphones and then like I had my playlist of like all my favorite like choral pieces or like slower echoey things. The evening's headliner was Craig Leon who's best known for producing several important 1970s rock albums including the Ramones first album but his own records well, they were electronic, they were minimal, and they were about aliens. But these records, recently reissued as the Anthology of Interplanetary Folk Music, are considered seminal albums in the ambient world. I asked Leon how he was thinking about the music he was making in the late 70s and early 80s. I had no idea that it was ambient, number one, because uh, ambient implies that it's kind of spatial and in the background at the same time. It's actually taking on the environment. What I was doing wasn't. What I was doing is actually structured. So why in a church? It's built for vocal music. So you take advantage of the natural reverberation of the space. It's a mess if you try to do anything uh, percussion-centric. It just won't work in a church. Um, and I've had those experiences before. I'm like, this doesn't belong here. If you do it at um, a bar or venue, it's clanking of the bar. People are talking and, and everyone's standing. On the night of the event, I took my place on a pew as the warm light of the setting sun gave way to a natural darkness that made it kind of hard to see the people around me. And as the internal architecture began to crawl with color and light, the crowd fell into a sustained silence. There's a kind of reverence at Ambient Church that feels more like Carnegie Hall than it does a standard concert venue. This just sense of a delicate communion. Um, you have a thousand people in the room sitting in complete silence. There has to be power there. For The Frame, I'm Paul Ratliff. The next Ambient Church, featuring the music of Malcolm Cecil, takes place February 15th at Pasadena Presbyterian Church. And that'll do it for today. Remember to follow us on Twitter and Facebook. You can find us at The Frame. I'm John Horn. Thanks for listening. We're back here tomorrow at the Moan Broadcast Center.
Alayist has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite LA restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAS.com slash events.